Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon. This is John Suntress. Great double feature for you today. We're going to start things off talking with author Patty Farmer about her brand new book, Playboy Swings. Playboy Swings uh, looks at the idea of Playboy as uh, really a lifestyle that progressed through the Playboy clubs, the incredible influence on jazz music, and also comedy uh, through the 1960s, but really also just the idea of Playboy as a lifestyle and its evolution from beyond just a magazine, but really becoming this important cultural movement. Patty interviewed over 200 people that were involved in performing and uh, operating the Playboy clubs. There are a lot of great stories here in uh, involving uh, show business and encounters with the mob and just uh, really dealing with all the cultural moments of the 60s through the Playboy prism, from civil rights to, of course, sexual awareness and beyond. It's an excellent history of uh, the Playboy clubs and really uh, a side of the 60s from a very specific point of view. The book is on sale now. Then we're going to be talking to Riley Brown. Riley continues to do excellent work for Marvel uh, with the character Deadpool, specifically with uh, the Infinite Comics, and uh, he's in the midst of a story right now with Fabian Niciesa. Uh, we talk about his work on the Infinite Comics and beyond, and as always, just a great conversation with Riley Brown. Two neat conversations for you on today's Word Balloon. Let's get things started now with Patty Farmer. You know, it was just announced uh, last week that Pamela Anderson will be the last uh, nude model to be featured in Playboy, uh, the January-February issue that actually comes out this month in just a couple weeks. But uh, it was a good opportunity, good timing to release this conversation. Also, Patty's book is available now, and uh, you can get it uh, if you go to Amazon through the Word Balloon portal. If you go from wordballoon.com and click on uh, the Amazon tab, it will take you to the Word Balloon store, and uh, Word Balloon gets a little kickback. It never costs you more to order things through Word Balloon, but given that it is the Christmas season, if you've got some other uh, things on your list that you want to consider buying through Amazon, I ask you to do it through Word Balloon and uh, show your patronage, and uh, I thank you for uh, that kind of support. But uh, let's start things off with uh, the author of Playboy Swings, a great conversation with Patty Farmer to start things off on Word Balloon. Very happy to have on the line the author of Playboy Swings. It's uh, Patty Farmer, who has just written an outstanding book about uh, the rise of Playboy, not only as a magazine, but really a culture. And it's a, it's a pleasure to uh, have you on, Patty. Welcome. Oh, thank you, John. It's my pleasure. You know, I'm uh, I'm based in Chicago, and uh, really it was only until a couple years ago that uh, the letters came down from uh, what was Playboy's headquarters here on the, the very north end of Chicago's Loop. And uh, it, it was part of the thrill knowing uh, not only being a, a radio broadcaster in Chicago and stuff, but, you know, just remembering uh, Chicago's uh, strength as a media giant when all the big cities kind of were operating independently. And Playboy's, you know, inception in 1953, you know, came pretty much just a couple of years after the golden age of television and was part of that media rise. And it was, you know, I mean, as a little kid, I remember the strength of Playboy, certainly in the early 70s. Oh, definitely. Uh, Hefner was really a brilliant businessman. He branded the name Playboy way before, you know, Donald Trump ever thought about putting the uh, the name Trump on a building. You know, people definitely recognize the name Playboy around the world and the strength that it has behind it. Yeah, and you know, just this year, it's it's kind of melancholy as we're closing out 2015, and we hear that Playboy is making this this change to 
you know, uh, get rid of the nudes, which, you know, obviously was was part of uh, the beginnings of Playboy. And it's funny how it's reverting back. Well, in some people's eyes, it's reverting to a more Maxim or some of these other young men's magazines. But as you point out, um, Playboy really was a culture beyond the nude pictures and really was this amazing style making uh, creation. And I think it's interesting to note and, and it comes through in a lot of your interviews that it wasn't half fully formed pipe and, uh, and, and dinner jacket, or I should say his pajamas and his smoking jacket. Uh, right. But it really was this kind of eager young man, much like his own readers that were trying to be cool and, and really look for a blueprint on how to be cool. I think you hit that right on the head, John. Um, I, we see Hef evolve right along with his audience. You know, what makes a playboy? You know, what's the ideal play, playboy man? I think was mm-hmm. the logo of the magazine. And uh, Hef was kind of evolving, as I said, right along with his readers. Really neat. And I, and I, and, you know, I, obviously fashion was a big part of it. Um, and again, it, you know, the, the joke always was, well, Playboy, I buy it for the magazine, or I buy it for the articles. And, uh, but the reality was, really, I mean, there was great fiction in here. There was great uh, interviews as well. Um, you know, authors like Arthur C. Clarke and Ian Fleming were serialized in Playboy. I'll, I'll let you continue as far as fiction and nonfiction, for that matter. Well, you mentioned Ian Fleming, and uh, at the early uh, years of the magazine, Ian wrote seven short stories for Playboy, and this was the uh, seed that developed into the Bond movies. You know, On Her Majesty's Secret Service appeared in Playboy, and then it was bought and made into you know the the movie that we all all see um, or all have seen. And uh, Ian Fleming and James Bond, they were kind of you know part of the Playboy mystique too. You know, I think. James Bond even admired uh, the power of Playboy in Diamonds Are Forever. We see him opening his wallet at one point, and right next to his license to kill is his Playboy card. So that was <laughs> very uh, telling, you know, very James Bond, but very Playboy. Absolutely, and I want to talk about the, the, the keys and, and, the, and the clubs in, in a second, because uh, certainly that is part of the evolution of, of the business and and again, the culture, um, starting though with uh, things like music, it's interesting because obviously jazz was such a big part of Playboy, and that was really cool to see. And I'm I'm kind of an amateur jazz fan. I'm not I'm not somebody that knows every name, but I, I really do love a lot of what became West Coast jazz, like Dave Brubeck and people like that. And just again, that kind of period that Playboy was created in. Um, did you ever find out before we get into the jazz stuff? Because '53 is when obviously you know Playboy started. But um, that rock wasn't um, um, as much of a uh, part of the, the the culture that the magazine was trying to project. Was was rock really more teenage music, and and jazz was the more sophisticated music to kind of shoot for? You know, I think it's as simple as that. Jazz was Hef's music of choice. Hef loved mm-hmm. jazz. He he liked the American Songbook. But growing mm-hmm. up, he liked jazz. When he was in high school, he wrote for his high school news, newspaper about music, about jazz. So I think it was really that simple. He just liked it. You know, so he incorporated it into 
you know, everything that he loved doing as far as uh, back as the magazine. You mentioned the magazine started in 1953. That issue with Marilyn Monroe on the cover, he could have mm. had uh, a feature article about, you know, any movie star, any sports star, any politician, and yet that first article is about the Dorsey brothers. So, you know, that was that was where he got his kicks. You know, he was able to do what he liked, what he really enjoyed. And even when uh, he started that, you know, iconic Playboy interviews in 62, again, he could have had anyone, and he had Miles Davis as that first Playboy interview. Wow, that's amazing, and I forgot about yeah. that in the book. Um, I, You know, one thing I focused on, obviously, and I knew this too before the book, you know, uh, have among the people that did Playboy interviews, Alex Haley, who... You know, I guess his interview with Malcolm X became the basis of mm -hmm. his later fleshed out book of the same subject. And um, also, of course, people might not remember Alex Haley from from Roots. Uh, right, the that, that small little book. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but I mentioned to you before we started recording, um, I had a, an issue that I felt like really was kind of in the heart of the demographic. And I'll be interested, actually, when I tell you the, the month and year where you would put it in Playboy's life. It's February of 65. It's the it's the Jazz Poll uh, Winners magazine with, um, oh, God. Well, I know she's, I don't know if that's her on the cover. Kim Novak, there's a pictorial of uh, Kim Novak. And then also a Beatles interview. And again, February of 65. So this is really early in Beatlemania. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and uh, conducted by Gene Shepard, which I love too. And just being the pop culture, you know, nerd that I am, uh, he, of course, is the narrator and creator of a Christmas story, yeah. among other things. The great, the great radio voice of WOR, and really, uh, Christmas story is kind of based of the same, on the same kind of storytelling he told on the air. But that's the thing. I mean, my God, this magazine has so much great culture of the moment in it. And uh, yeah, I don't know. So where where would you put like February '65 in terms of Playboy's life? Is that kind of the heart of the of its prime? Where would you say? You hit that right on the head, John. It was up and going and really at the pinnacle. You know, at that time, the Playboy clubs were in full swing around the country. It was cool. It was hip. It was sophisticated. The clubs were a place where not only great uh, entertainers, musicians, singers, comedians went to perform, but also the greats went just to hang out. Uh, Tony Bennett could be seen there often just bringing his friends to listen to music or, you know, go for dinner or hang out. Uh, you mentioned the Beatles. John Lennon, after uh, that, that famous, famous uh, appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, their first appearance in America, he was asked, you know, where he wanted to go to spend the evening. And he said he and his wife then, Cynthia, wanted to go to the Playboy Club. So that's how John Lennon spent that night when, you know, women, young girls ringed the Plaza Hotel looking for them and Ed Sullivan Studios, and they went to the Playboy Club. That's fantastic. And, you know, again, yeah, the, as, as the, the company evolved, it went from the magazine and, and things in the magazine to the clubs themselves. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's that great period in the 60s where nightclubs were still – you know, a big hub of, of, you know, classy entertainment. And uh, and Playboy very quickly asserted itself with the first club in Chicago 
among a bunch of, you know, very successful nightclubs. I mean, there was there was a happening nightclub scene both in music and comedy in Chicago. It was interesting, I guess, I didn't realize literally as the first Playboy Club was opening, the Black Orchid, which was a mm-hmm. very famous uh, nightclub in Chicago, was, was closing down. And that was kind of uh, maybe a lucky break, but maybe not. Again, it seems like Playboy was really able to step in and, and assert itself from the beginning. Uh, it, they were. They were able to quickly... Uh, you know, uh, assert themselves as, as the place to go among other clubs. You know, that was the era where, you know, you didn't have one or two jazz clubs or nightclubs. You you had a lot of them, and everybody did well because of it. I think mm-hmm. it, it's kind of a sad commentary that we don't have that nowadays. You, know, you Absolutely. see one or two <laughs> opening and a dozen closing. And, um, you know, it's a sign of the times, 1965, was a different era, a different time. It was the time of the nightclubs. But, um, yeah, that first club, 1960, it was great. You know, among the early entertainers, they had a young Aretha Franklin. She was still a teenager. Uh, you know, Ramsey Lewis, uh, uh, great comedians. You know, Erwin Corey, Dick Gregory, just on and on. You know, name somebody and they were there. It was just wonderful, wonderful entertainment. And they quickly opened in uh, Miami, New Orleans, New York, and then just really around the country, you know, Dallas and Cincinnati and, 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 you know. So it, it was a great time. It was a cool time. And Hess wanted a nightclub where people bought memberships, and they weren't expensive. It was $25 for a key. And mm-hmm. if you were in Cincinnati, you felt like you were in your club. You know, I'm going to my club, the Playboy Club. Or if you were in Dallas, it was the same thing. And you were assured of great quality in entertainment and food. And, you know, of course, the bunnies weren't hard on the eye either. <laughs> Absolutely. I, um, my, my uncle uh, was a key member. I remember uh, seeing that on his keychain, and he was very proud of that and, and was part of that Mad Men cocktail generation. Um, and that, I mean, that's the great thing is that, um, you know, have from the beginning was, uh, very much about freedom of expression of, of sexuality. And the cool thing was, yeah, the bunnies were this obvious eye candy, but there were strict rules and it's not like it was easy to, you know, just kind of make time with a bunny, at least if they were, you know, and it sounded like most of them were kind of keeping to the rules. Oh, absolutely. They were very strict, and for a number of reasons, they had a lot of rules and regulations. Uh, From the bunny side of it, what they told me was they felt very protected and uh, concerned about. You know, nobody could ask their telephone, well, if people asked their telephone number, they couldn't give out their telephone number or their last name, or they couldn't, you know, do it for another girl. You know, if somebody, a customer called them over and said, what's that girl's last name? They couldn't do that. You know, nobody was allowed to, heavens, touch the bunnies or they'd be asked to leave immediately or say anything rude. They were very well protected. But from the the Playboy side of it, I think the reason was they were protecting themselves. They had the government watching them. They had the church watching them and every civic group in every city waiting for them to make a mistake. And if it looked like the girls were being too friendly or soliciting, you know, the customers, they'd be uh, closed down as soon as they could. 
they really were, um, and understandably so, again, because of the shocking material that's in, in the magazine, given the time of the 50s and, and 60s. Um, but they really were kind of always under massive scrutiny. I know, too, that in the 70s, when they kind of fled to L.A. after kind of, you know, there was, I don't, you know, I don't believe you cover it in, in the book, but there was a murder in, at, at the mansion, mm-hmm. right? Or, or some sort of, there was some death that happened right. at the mansion. And forgive me if I'm mischaracterizing it as a murder. But yeah, I mean, it was definitely under cloudy circumstances. And yeah, I mean, pretty much, you know, stayed at the, I mean, at that point, the LA mansion was already established and stuff. But it, it kind of, it is un, unfortunate that there is a lot of bad uh, feeling, I'm sure, on Playboy's part. And, and you know, it, it was a very heavy moral hand here in Chicago that kind mm-hmm. of, I think, you know, kind of pushed them away finally in the 70s. Right. It's a little funny uh, story. Victor Lowndes, who was, you know, the second in charge and Hef's friend, and uh, he really was in charge of of the clubs. You know, Hef ran the magazine and Victor Lowndes took care of the clubs. But Victor told me a story because I asked him, I said, quite frankly, you know, we're talking about the 60s and mobs were, the mob was involved in nightclubs all over the country. And Absolutely. I said, you know, how did or did Playboy avoid doing business with the mob? And he said it was really, really very simple that at one point Hef did have a visit from certain family members. And uh, they suggested that they thought it was a good idea for them to do business together. And Hef just very quietly explained, you know, what we were just talking about. He said, you know, he said, I have the eyes of the government civic leaders and the church watching every step I make. He said, do you really think it would be smart for either of us to get into business with each other? And, you know, these people that came to see him kind of thought for a moment, and they said, you make a good point, you know, and they never <laughs> approached them or gave them any trouble again. <laughs> I, it doesn't surprise but, me. and that That's how the city works on both sides of the law. So that mm-hmm. really, uh, yeah, exactly. There's your typical Chicago story right there. Wow. Right. Unbelievable. And a, and a typical many... Hef story, too, because he can boil anything down to logic. And, uh, you know, Hef doesn't get too much credit or enough credit for being a really brilliant businessman. Uh, first, I'm curious about your tackling this subject. Like, and because and, I didn't really, I, I saw in your bio that you're a, you were a former model. Were you ever in the magazine yourself? No, not at all. My uh, little niche is entertainment history. I love doing research about it and finding out about old nightclubs and going to the performers we still have around and asking them to tell stories. You know, I'm just the nerd that likes to sit and and write about it and do research. But, uh, you know, I, I found that we were losing so many great entertainers. Uh, my last book, uh, The Persian Room, which was about the Persian Room, after that book came out, I lost uh, uh, Andy Williams, you know, had given me an in-depth interview. Fantastic. Uh, Patty, wow. pa- Patty Page, uh, Polly Berg, cool. and Celeste Holmes. Wow. All these folks passed away. And, sure. you know, touch wood, I was lucky enough to get at least a small part of their story before they did. And with uh, Playboy Swings, I spoke to uh, Joan Rivers just months before she passed, uh, Steve Rossi, uh, 
Al Baletto, who was very big down in New Orleans and helped integrate that club. You know, just many, many entertainers who aren't around to tell the story. So I feel very privileged to be able to talk to these folks and let my readers hear from them what it was like. Um, I guess that's a long way of explaining how, how I kind of came to entertainment history. And I kept hearing Playboy. You know, people I would talk to said, you know, I performed at Playboy or I was at the jazz festival or on the TV show. And I was surprised to find out that Playboy for almost 20 years was the largest employer of entertainment in the country. And I thought if I was surprised, other people would be surprised. And uh, I'm finding that's true. Did you count how many people when when the research was done that you spoke to about this? Or as you say, was it in some cases part of your interviews for uh, the Persian Room and some other projects? No, uh, for this specifically for this book, it was over over 200. So it was in the hundreds. Uh, funny enough, somebody had asked me, you know, could you make a list for us of all the people that performed at the Playboy Club? Oh, okay. And I, uh, John, I just you know, it would be so much easier for me to make you a list of who wasn't there. You know, everybody, <laughs> sure. you know, we mentioned Aretha Franklin, Al Jarreau started at the Playboy Clubs. He was part of a duo, Al and Julio. Uh, Joan Rivers, she started at the Playboy Clubs as part of a trio. It was Jim, Jake, and Joan. Uh, you know, so all these people... <laughs> And all these stories that people just don't know about and the importance of the clubs in giving people work and letting them find their footing, work in front of an audience before they either broke out to the next level or, you know, some of them didn't. Some of them just were able to work 40 weeks a year for 10 years at the Playboy Clubs, you know, doing what they loved, supporting a family and their names you don't know about. But then other people like Al Jarreau was discovered at the Playboy Clubs, and Joan Rivers was uh, able to advance to the next level. When she came back to the Playboy Club, she was a solo stand-up. And then the third time she came back, she was a headliner. So a lot of, just a lot of people came through those doors. I remember hearing George Carlin in interviews, too, talk about his early career, and you touch on it in your book about uh, he was with uh, Jack Burns, who in the 70s was known for the comedy team of Burns and Shriver, and Burns also replaced Don Knotts on the Eddie Griffith show in the deputy role uh, from that Don Knotts left and everything. It uh, it was cool to see. Yeah, Carlin was another guy that seemed to evolve. And then, too, you really get into the Dick Gregory story, and I'm glad because that's such an amazing story that, you know, because he's an advocate, people might know him more as an advocate. And it was, oh, yeah, and you might not know this, but, you know, 30 years, 40 years ago, he was really a great comedian. Hell, 50 years ago, he really stopped in the 60s, now that I think about it. And it's, I asked, did you get to speak to him directly? And that sounded like I that did. was one of your, yeah. It did. I spoke to him at length. And when he got his uh, star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame last year, uh, the first thing he said in his acceptance speech was that he credited Hugh Hefner for helping to break the color barrier at the Playboy Club when he was a young man, and that was his big break. You know, so a lot of people give Hef a lot of credit, and I don't, Hef never, in my opinion, never set out to be uh, an activist. He, and I think he was surprised sometimes when he'd get uh, 
uh, fallback. You know, he was just doing what he thought was right. He didn't believe in segregation. And I think he was genuinely surprised when he'd have, have mixed races on his TV show and advertisers would write in threatening to pull their advertising because, you know, it wasn't what he set out to do, but he never backed down from it. He was just doing what he thought was right. And many people credit him with advancing all kinds of human rights, civil rights, uh, gay rights, women's rights. He just believed in, you know, all kinds of freedoms. People should be free to do what they want. On the TV show, yeah, it was interesting to learn that uh, stations in the South just refused to carry it. Both both uh, TV uh, programs, one in the early 60s and one in the late, it was first uh, Playboy After Dark and then it was Playboy Penthouse? Uh, the other way, yeah. Oh, it is the other uh, way. Penthouse. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah Penthouse was um, first. and Pen Yeah, Penthouse was from Chicago and uh, that uh, I, I, was the second one as well? No, the second one was in L.A., right? Or in, right. It, right. Okay. The, uh, and, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just going to say, you know, the first uh, few shows were 1959, and to have uh, even a star as big as Nat King Cole come out and you know, talk for a bit and then sit down on a couch with a white woman, that was, you know, just something Shocking. that a yeah. lot of people could not accept. And yeah. it was amazing. Well, and also you talk about in the book how each club had its own quirks in a positive way and then sadly in some uh, some negative ways because, again, it was the 60s and uh, the club in Miami and the club in New Orleans certainly had its issues. Right. They had their battles for segregation. Uh, both those were franchise clubs to begin with. Another uh, forward-thinking idea of Hefner's because uh, franchising was – really just a, a very young idea at that time and uh, have had partners both in Miami and New Orleans and he didn't uh, think anybody would really enforce segregation and these two partners did both again in Miami and New Orleans especially and they were blocking uh, black members from entering and the uh, music uh, trios were being segregated and it was just a bad scene and and Hef and Playboy bought those clubs back at just a huge profit to the folks that had them uh, but that was the right thing you know that Hef thought he could do to set the record straight yeah that was really cool I mean that's the thing you just keep hearing about these kind of things that he did and I, I, I know there was a, a recent documentary that really went into Hex, Hef's activist mm -hmm. period and everything. So uh, I think the book, you know, the, the, the stories you tell about what happened at the resorts and clubs help with that. Lainey Kazan, I mean, my God, we talk about, you know, the advancements of, of men and stuff. It's, it was really cool. I had no idea that the woman who plays the mother in my big fat Greek wedding and is a wonderful, uh, it's, so, it's, it's great to see her now as this tremendous character actress. And uh, uh, my favorite year, back 20 years ago or 30 years ago, another great performance of first. But, you know, maybe some people forget that, like, in the 60s and 70s, a hell of a singer-entertainer and also, as you point out, a hell of a businesswoman. Right, she was. And uh, she just finished filming My Big Fat Greek Wedding too, So that's yes. coming up. <laughs> yes. uh, we had, had dinner not too long ago, and she was just back from filming that. 
but uh, Lainey is a force of nature, and she took over the, uh, to begin with, the L.A. club, you know, one room in that club to help try and turn it around, and did just an amazing job with that, so much so that they asked her to do the same thing in the New York club. So there were a lot of fun, interesting stories, especially one from David Benoit uh, that he told me starting, you know, when he was a young teenager that he started playing for Laney in, in Playboy and uh, some extra performances they had to do for some friends of Laney's. <laughs> Well, you will let people read it in the book, but mm-hmm. that's 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 the thing. No, I, I'm really uh, these people like uh, and Victor's last name again was it Victor, Victor French? Was that his name? Uh, Lowndes. Lowndes. Victor. Victor Lowndes. Ah, okay. Well, there and uh, yeah, I had no idea about his his you know role in the Playboy Empire, but no, it's amazing, and the stories are just great from the entertainers, the bunnies, and and the executives. It's it's very interesting, and and a real side of the business that I, you know, again, I, I, I don't think a lot of people understood. And also, again, this this cultivating the culture and really, you know, uh, grabbing this age group and and kind of do, fulfilling have swishes of like, hey, this is how to be cool. Come join me, and mm-hmm. making it affordable and making everybody feel like they were really ringside to this, you know, incredible happening that was going on, you know, pre. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the swinging, or like, well, not the swinging 60s, because certainly Playboy was part of that. How did that, yeah, how did the impact of, like, the British invasion and really 60s rock and roll uh, affect the magazine? I know, and you mentioned in the in the jazz polls, which really did start off as incredibly pure, really great jazz polls, but, you know, as, as pop music would creep in, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary might mm-hmm. find themselves with the vocal groups, and so folk, and, and even in some cases, some rock was kind of finding its way in the jazz polls. Right. You know, you they opened it up to the subscribers, of course, and they voted and, you know, they voted for their favorite, whatever, you know, guitar player. And so you, you would get some country singers or what have you. But you mentioned the, the swinging 60s and it was it was a young time and the sexual revolution and the pill and women's lib. And it was a great time for the clubs, I think. That's why, you know, the idea of having bunnies run run around and uh, serve, you know, was so popular. Uh, the club in London was a crazy club, too, uh, crazy successful, but it had all the, the you know, swinging folks from, from London. You know, that's where it all really began, I think, the swinging 60s. But it was... Um, just, I wish I could have lived during that time. And I think I think Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett told me he said, uh, "Hef took having fun and made it into a business and a very successful business." You know, he took the uh, the concept of how to have fun and just made it into this huge fun business. And that and how- that's so accurate. Okay, and how would you say uh, it was interesting too? You kind of, I, I think, point to um, we talk about the comedians that that did well at Playboy, and how it was this, you know, important circuit that could really keep a comedian's career alive. And it seemed that just as the resorts and the clubs were winding down, that's kind of when the rise of cable was happening, 
and uh, maybe that kind of uh, sucked the life out of going to a nightclub to see, uh, you know, a, a great comedic performance because you could stay at home and watch it on cable. And again, funny, George Carlin kind of and Robert Klein were those guys that obviously did work the Playboy circuit, but they were the spearheads to that next evolution with HBO. Right, right. Although I've heard a lot of uh, the comedians say it was a sad, you know, demise for them because they got paid to do the circuit where, you know, all the HBO specials and MTV and, well, I guess MTV wasn't comedy, but, uh, you know, all the TV specials, they didn't necessarily get that regular paycheck. And everybody liked that circuit. You know, they could fill in between gigs, you know, even big stars, you know, Ramsey Lewis or uh, Sonny Rollins or, you know, Monty Alexander or Rich Little or anybody, you know, they could take two weeks if they were going to, you know, have three weeks off between gigs in any specific town, you know, they could, you know, find something to do over at the Playboy Club and get paid for it. So I, I think you're right with the advent of TV and the cable channels really kind of fed into the demise and all the times change, you know, disco came and, you know, the fantasy of the bunnies was, you know, perhaps not what it once was. Right. And that's true too. I mean, certainly we, we found ourselves in a more corrective decade <laughs> and I, and I think, you know, the, uh, the moral compass, I think, you know, people were like, all right, put your pants on enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're right. <laughs> Pretty much. You know, You're so right. yeah, I, yeah, and I'm sure that didn't help. And also, again, the weird thing, and I and I love it. I heard Bill Maher make the joke. Uh, he was saying he, he was imitating Vladimir Putin, saying, "I don't understand you. You uh, you pay for health care. Yeah, you pay for health care, and your your porn- pornography is free. You know, yeah. and, <laughs> you know, and it's and it's kind of true. Unfortunately, um, I saw the, that great Bob Guccione documentary as well, and Playboy, I think, suffered from it. The the freedom of, of, of pornography also helped contribute to the decline in the magazine. And, you know, now, again, Playboy kind of sees itself uh, restructuring. But you say at the end of the book that there's, there's hope. And I, and I wonder how much that did come through in terms of the people you spoke to. How many, how many active, like, uh, employees of Playboy, like, that are still part of, of the business and stuff did you speak to? Did you speak to a lot? I, no, there's not a lot anymore. You know, I, I spoke sure. to, you know, dozens for sure, but, you know, not like when, when Chicago had the Playboy offices there with just, you know, floors and floors of people and all the clubs had people. We just don't have that anymore. We don't have the clubs. Uh, I did go to London and talk to everybody over at the London club, from the manager to uh the gentleman who runs the world famous bar that's in the in the club there and it was adorable really because it's london and you still have bunnies and they're still beautiful and the outfits are still attractive and they serve tea you know so and in the <laughs> afternoon in london you can have your tea and be served by a bunny in the playboy club it's all very and, and civilized that- that club came back you, in, in your book, in, in, you say 2011? Uh, yes, yes. And it's doing great and it's beautiful and uh, very, you, you almost, I don't even know how to phrase this. I don't want to say you're stepping back into time. It's very modern and hip, but um, 
you know, you feel like it's a special place. Very sophisticated. Yeah, the the classic vibe. That's great. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what one would hope for if they were to go to a Playboy club today. So that's one. So is that the sole club right now? That's the only one right now, although headquarters says they have a lot of plans for other clubs around the world. And uh, I was talking to, you know, of course, many, many entertainers and many like Lorna Lust and uh, even Laney said, you know, if there are other clubs that open up, you know, let people know that I'm I want to work them. So I think that's that's really the highest compliment that anybody could could give. You know, Lorna said uh, the Playboy Clubs was a type of job that as soon as it was over, you were asking your manager when you when you were coming back. When am I booked here again? So it was that's that that was cool. Absolutely, no. I honestly, I I hope this works out. Is it being franchised then? Is it being licensed uh, from Playboy, or is this part of mm-hmm. the the organization? I see. Okay, it, it, so it's a separate. Yeah. It, it's okay. like the uh, original concept was with the franchise partner. Sure. You know, so sure. uh, you know, Playboy just taking on partners. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, in, in today's business and stuff like that, absolutely. You you know, let let nightclub people run a nightclub, and and I think right. that's that's terrific. No, that's wonderful. And and as you say, you wanna you wanna uh, experience that kind of hip Playboy vibe. So I mean, that that's great. And I would imagine that it would work, especially internationally, to kind of you know, kind of a theme nightclub, I suppose. Right. You think about you know, I have to tell you a story about how they opened, and I do. I can tell it in the book, but it was um, back in in 1959, and Playboy magazine had run an article about another nightclub, the Gaslight Nightclubs, and Victor Lounge had gotten all these letters. You know, it was back, of course, before computers, and you could shoot off an email, and men actually sat down and wrote wrote letters, and Victor went to Hess, and he said, you know, I have about a thousand letters from readers who want to know more about this nightclub. He said, how do you want to handle it? You know, I don't feel that we should really be giving them, you know, too much more free publicity. You know, should we talk to them and ask them to buy some advertising or what do you want to do? And Hess said, gosh, you know, isn't it too bad we can't open our own nightclub? And Victor and Hess kind of looked at each other and they said, well, why don't we? And uh, uh, then, you know, after they noodled it around for about an hour, Victor says, you know what? It's a great idea, only we don't know Bubkiss about running a nightclub, but I know a friend of mine that does. You know, so Victor and Hess went over to Arnie Morton's restaurant, Morton's you know, who later went on to uh, – to Morton's fame, and the three of them sat around, and Arnie says, oh, there's no trick to it. You know, I can take care of the food and beverage, and Victor can take care of entertainment, and, you know, Hef is a visionary. So they all threw money in. They all put $10,000 in, each of them. Uh, Hef took two shares, one for Playboy, uh, the company, and one for himself, and so it was the four of them put $10,000 apiece in, and started that nightclub. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then it goes global. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. And and have the right answer at the right moment like that. That's, that's the thing that no, I, and I, and I really do think that you kind of play out that genius uh, business acumen that, uh, that they had in, in creating this empire. 
And and again, yeah, like you point out too that um, this is very early in the history of franchising and stuff, and also uh, trademarking. I mean, that's the other mm-hmm. great thing is, and truly, this is Playboy's still actively great asset is the logo and the ideal that they were right. able to, you know, manufacture and create over these uh, 60 plus years. Right. And they were very forward thinking. They trademarked the bunny uh, outfit, you know, so up even in 2015, anybody who wants to sell a bunny outfit, if they don't get the permission, they're up for copyright infringement. Uh, and they actively, actively guard that. So there are a lot of, uh, a lot of forward thinking ideas. And, you know, one of the, the great joys to me in interviewing everyone was people were happy, you know, to talk about Playboy. You know, even Joan Rivers. You know, she smiled. And, <laughs> and you know, Absolutely. Just, you know, they were young and they thought anything was possible. You know, they thought they were all going to be stars. And. Many of them did. You know, many of them became big, big stars. You know, Al Jarreau sure. said, Playboy was like the little engine that could. You know, you just knew that if you kept plugging away, something good was going to happen. And and it did. You know, they all enjoyed their experience there. Absolutely. No, I uh, earlier this year, I, I spoke to uh, one of the deputy editors over on the digital side, and uh, I talked as well about these same things in terms of Playboy's importance in in fiction and nonfiction, as I said earlier. And and your book really does lay out uh, the entertainment side, uh, both uh, the clubs and then you know in the forms of jazz music and and comedy as well. It's it's really an important part of 20th century history. And and hopefully uh, with what's going on in uh, the uh, British club and maybe some other clubs and stuff. Uh, and also, as the magazine and, and online presence changes, we'll, we'll see what happens in, in the years to come. But uh, the book is called Playboy Swings, tremendous book by Patty Farmer. Highly recommend it and really pleased to have this opportunity to talk to you about it, Patty, because I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, what, what are you uh, – can you, can you tease us perhaps on what your next uh, entertainment history subject might be? You know what? There is so much going on that I, I'm not done with Playboy yet. Yeah, so I'm... The, the publisher cut 150 pages from this book, and I could have written another thousand. So I'm, wow. I'm not letting go of, of Playboy. There's still a lot to be told. And this I story... That, well, and I know, have to ask... Yeah, no, please go ahead, and then I'll ask my question. Go ahead. No, I'm so this sorry. Story. I was just going to say, you know, this story... People just didn't know. You know, when I talk to people around the country, I always say, what's the first thing you think of when I say Playboy? And, of course, it's bunnies and centerfolds. But, you know, the second thing really should be music and great entertainment. But there are so many people that don't know about it. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still out there uncovering all these nuggets. I wondered if, and I meant to ask this earlier, uh, and your answer inspired me to ask. Uh, are you know? I imagine these interviews and stuff. Did you record them? Do you? Would you? I mean, do you? Do you maybe see putting something out more multimedia beyond uh, the book itself? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so because my interviews are so in depth, and we cover just such a multitude of topics. You know, primarily Playboy. But we do go off into other 
other venues and other sure. avenues. So um, I think I'll just write about it for now. Okay, okay. Because, yeah, I even wondered in this age of podcasting, not even necessarily a documentary or anything, you know, that expensive or even big production. But, you know, I mean, as you and I speak right now on a podcast, mm -hmm. I thought, man, I'd love to I'd love to hear some of those interviews that you did with the people that you that you quote in the book. Yeah, that's something to think about. Well, there you go. <laughs> and you're about to embark on a you're a bit, you're about to embark on a big tour for the book, right? I am. I am. Uh, we've started already. Uh, New York and Chicago. Although I have been invited back to Chicago already. You know, I oh, was great. there about a month ago, and uh, plans are being made to come back in the spring. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Doing a, a bigger tour in Chicago, and I was already. I had two book signings and a couple, one TV show and a couple radio shows. So I'm I'm really looking forward to coming back. They're probably March or April. Okay, well I hope to see you. I'll I'll make mention to your PR people and uh, let me know when uh, when you're coming back through Chicago. That'd be great to uh, to meet you and and thank you for this uh, great opportunity to talk and also uh, the excellent book. It's called Playboy Swings. It is out now as this uh, podcast is re released. So uh, no reason not to uh, pick it up and enjoy the words of Patty Farmer. Thank you very much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. Nice conversation with the author of Playboy Swings, Patty Farmer. Um, I ask that if you're interested in buying the book based on what you just heard, uh, go through uh, Word Balloon's Amazon portal. If you go to wordballoon.com and click on the Amazon tab, that will take you to the Word Balloon store. And as I tell you always, uh, it will never cost you more ordering uh, your Amazon products this way, but it gives uh, Word Balloon a bit of a kickback. So uh, we get uh, a few cents on the dollar uh, thanking uh, us for uh, bringing you to Amazon. So as I said, this time of year, we're starting to buy our Christmas gifts. Might be a good time to check out something new from Amazon through WordBalloon.com. All right, let's go uh, on with our conversations, uh, part two. It's time to talk to Riley Brown. Always great to talk to Riley. Riley is one of the innovators out there, I think, with guys like Pete Krause and uh, some of the other digital artists that aren't just doing comics on the tablet in that same traditional way they would on paper, but uh, the evolution of layering and uh, as we swipe, uh, usually images build and they build in a very interesting way. And that, of course, uh, dictates the way that uh, Riley composes a panel and composes a page. So uh, it's really uh, neat to get his perspective on digital comics. Uh, he is doing an infinite Marvel Deadpool comic right now with Fabian Niciesa. It's a very traditional Marvel story, but presented in this very new way. Um, it's always great to have Riley Brown back, and I'm happy to uh, present this new conversation with him now on Word Balloon. Riley Brown, welcome back to Word Balloon. This is our second uh, long one. I've, I've seen you at a couple shows, and uh, I'm glad you tapped me on the shoulder uh, you know, through Twitter. And they're like, hey, I want to talk. I'm like, good. Let's talk. Yeah, man. It's, uh, it's good to get this together again. Um, I, you know, I, I'm sitting here drawing all day, and I'm listening to your podcast, and I'm just like, you know, I want to shout, shout out to you and say something. I'm like, oh, wait, i got to actually call him up and get him on the other line. <laughs> do, you have, do you have a list of grievances you want to go over on several episodes? <laughs> no, Look, no, when no, you no. talked to uh, Jason last time, you were totally out of line. Here's why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let, me, let me give you a – let me tell you a thing or two. No, no, that's no, that's fine. I, you know, all right. So you've got a you've got a new um, a cable Deadpool uh, Infinite comic, although Deadpool cable. Yeah. Oh yes. And, yes. Deadpool's and, and, and Deadpool's on top now. 
Yeah, and very aware of the fact that he is the the, the top character now in the uh, <laughs> in the story as well. You're two you're two issues into the uh, split second. Uh, isn't that it's called split second? Yeah, isn't it's it? called split second. And that's the villain, of course. That's the name of the villain and the name of the comic. Yeah, weird. Is he an old? Is he an old villain? I mean, it feels very, you know, Marvel like you know, eighties, nineties Marvel in a, in a good way. Uh, technically, he's a future villain, John. He's <laughs> well, this, uh, this is true. Very good point. Yes, by all means. Uh, no, he's he's totally original for this series. And um, really, yep. Uh, and he's, uh, I mean, you know, I'm working with Fabian Nicieza, and obviously, mm-hmm. he pretty much owned Marvel in the mid nineties. So yes. um, if, it, if it feels <laughs> and, like and, that, and Deadpool probably, and Deadpool and Cable yeah, as well for it. For, it just means it feels like a Nicieza character. <laughs> no, it's uh, well and also you're you're given uh co writing credit. Is that because of the nature of the infinite comic in your direction of the art and everything or are you uh taking a more active role in writing this one? Um both but uh really I gotta hand it to Fabian like I, you know, we've been working on this thing, and uh, the original story idea was his, and then we started kicking some ideas back and forth, and then he kind of wrote a plot outline. It was very uh, old-school Stan Lee, uh, Jack Kirby, Marvel style, where he wrote Mm -hmm. the plot outline, and then I kind of did my own, um, my panel breakdowns and stuff like that, because... I mean, it's nobody's really figured out yet how to write a script for the infinite format without like sure. totally stepping on the artist's toes. So what he gave me was very loose, and then I did my thing and gave some dialogue suggestions and stuff. And then when he put together the final dialogue and submitted it to the editors, um, he put a note in that said, notice that the credits say written by Fabian and Riley, and that's because Riley did co-write this thing and should be credited and uh and paid as such so um, that's really cool yeah so that Very was nice. really cool of him and absolutely yeah you know, it's nice to see your efforts appreciated you know like when you go when you know you're really sweating on something and putting your all into it and then somebody's like yeah you know what like you deserve a little more credit than you usually get have they taken your infinite comics and made them into like trade paperbacks and hard you know, like hard copy uh, trades? Yeah, they have. Um, they did for the uh, Dracula's Gauntlet, Deadpool's Dracula's Gauntlet, which I did this uh-huh. year. And then I did a uh-huh. Guardians of the Galaxy one that um, was collected with a bunch of other Guardians of the Galaxy Infinite Comics. And okay. I did an uh, Avengers vs. X-Men one back when that crossover was going on. Mm-hmm. And I think it's been printed somewhere... Because I think I've gotten royalties for it, but I've never actually seen a printed version of it, so I'm not really sure. Okay, because I was wondering too. the The only uh, Infinite comic, well, and really, no, it was more of a motion comic. I was thinking of when Bendis and Malev did the uh, Spider Woman comic. Oh yeah, and that was really more of a motion comic. Because this, you know, when I when I read your Infinite comics and stuff, I wonder how they read as graphic novels. I'm sure they're fine. But there really is this, you know, dynamic storytelling going on when you guys layer and, and you know, the way the presentation happens and everything and the, the picture evolves as you're, you know, obviously flipping and everything. And it, it is interesting that, again, they're fine when they're, when they're completed uh, images and stuff. But, yeah, there's just this kind of difference. And I wonder if in some cases there's an extra panel 
that has maybe that shares the same art as the finished piece, but you almost you know do that as a a panel progression in the same way that you do a swipe progression. Yeah, there. Uh, well, when we do the print version, I go through it with a fine tooth comb and reassess. Mm-hmm. Or I de-infinitize it as the editors have taken to calling it. And Understood. so I take all the panels and kind of rearrange them into a proper um, comic book page format. There mm-hmm. are occasions where something is redundant or something like just doesn't fit on the page because of however it worked in the digital version. And there are occasions where you have to cut something out, but it's nothing that really affects the story. Um, sure. Although some, I mean, some of them are the coolest parts of the digital comic just make absolutely no sense in print. Uh, for instance, the uh, with the Dracula's Gauntlet that I did with uh, Brian Posehn and Jerry Duggan last mm-hmm. year, um, we have this huge opening credit sequence. It's like a James Bond intro, and it's really I cool. Yeah, and it's the yeah. thing everybody talks about. Um, but that had to be completely cut out of the print version because it just... As a print comic, it makes no sense. Like what? Like what? Interesting. It just takes up a lot of space and is so meaningless. But um, wow. Yes. Okay. Well, well, that's good though because then that makes the infinite comic unique from the trade. Well, so exactly. You know, I mean, and the whole point of doing things the way that I've been doing them is to make the best reading experience for whatever format it is that sure. we're working on. So, uh, if the print comic, the digital comic, worked exactly the same. I would be actually pretty disappointed. Understood. Absolutely. Do you have you had to uh, redraw anything for a trade? No, I haven't done anything like that. It, it's okay. It's been, uh, I, you know, maybe there's like a couple of really minor, like, oh, this, you know, uh, this one line gets cropped a little bit, but nothing, nothing significant. Okay. Okay. Have you, uh, you know, as you do these, how many of these Infinite Comics have you done now? Um, as far as arcs go. Well, uh, I, well, I did the one Deadpool Dracula story arc. And, right. Uh, well, like you said, the, the Guardians was like kind of a short story. Right. That was a one-issue thing. The X-Men thing was a one-issue thing. Okay. Uh, okay. So, yeah. How many complete stories, I guess, would be? Yeah. And then, and then this one. Well, and then Power Play as well. Right, right, okay, and I wanted to ask about power play. Okay, so so four of the four Marvels and and then power play. Um, yep, that's right. Oh, okay. Have you what What are you learning? Are, you know, are, are there things that have evolved in your art or the way you approach something on you know issue or story five and and things you've learned that have made it either easier or are you challenging yourself in, oh, in a certain way? I, yeah, I've absolutely learned a lot. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know if I've actually learned anything to make it easier. I can't, I do challenge myself a lot, which just makes it more challenging. And um, <laughs> yeah. I, man, we uh, one of these Cave One Deadpool issues. Uh, Fabian's working on the final script for right now. The other day, I think he was going to kill me because it's it really goes out there and does some crazy stuff. I don't want to give away any spoilers, so I can't get into it too much right now. But okay, it it's it, it's very unconventional and uh i I don't know it will we'll make some noise about it once it actually happens but um okay yeah we're we're really pushing the envelope here and also pushing our sanity perhaps (laughs) (laughs) it's it's two issues in how long is this current story Uh, it's gonna be six issues six issues okay all right and how is it does it come out monthly or does it come out um it's every two weeks every two weeks okay 
because yeah, when you when you told me uh, one and two had come out, uh, as we're recording, is three coming out this week or in the, in a week or? Uh, I guess today's Sunday. Yeah, it comes out on Wednesday, or do these things come out on Tuesdays? I'm not really sure. Okay, all right, yeah, no, I think I think they do all come out Wednesday. I could be wrong. I know. I but, know there uh, was uh, with the previous one, uh, or with the I think the. I don't know. There was there was a little like hiccup with the release earlier. Like the first one was supposed to come out on a Wednesday, I think, but uh, there were some technical issues that made it get delayed till Thursday or something like that. Um, I don't know. I don't really know. Uh, I'm, I'm not in charge of that any of that stuff. I'm just okay. desperately trying to draw. It's like, wait, the next one comes out in two weeks. Crap! I gotta draw faster. <laughs> And are they are they essentially they seem to be the same size as a regular comic, are they? Um the digital ones are fifteen pages and so It is only fifteen. Interesting. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and uh well, I mean it's a, So two thirds or you're or seventy five percent of a because yeah. obviously it's it's a twenty page comic it, these days. Yeah, it's supposed to be fifteen right. pages. Um I honestly I usually end up drawing about seventeen pages of actual okay. drawings. Uh okay. but um but then, you know, I have to squish it down into 15 pages for the print release. And then we're going to combine two chapters at a time into the print versions. So sure. The issue's okay. 30 yeah. pages. All right. Interesting. Because, yeah, I mean, again, I'm um, as I was reading both issues and stuff, I'm like, this seems to be like the same length of a regular comic. And obviously maybe because, again, the drawing progression as opposed to panel progression is a little bit of this layering. So maybe that is why it does kind of feel like – there are more panels than okay. actually. Are there. Yeah, <laughs> that's really like you're getting your money's worth. <laughs> no, absolutely, man, and uh, that's the thing. And you know, it's um, you know, I gotta say, really, and I and I don't mean this is like a backhanded compliment, but like when Fabian is on the right book, he is great, and this is a great Deadpool Cable story. And I'm not a Deadpool and Cable fan. No, I know, I know, you're not, you're not into the X yeah, I know, man, dude. I, that's the thing. I, I, I truly, you're like Val Delandro in terms of. I really respect the hell out of what you guys do, and I think you're amazing artists. But like, it's just the Marvel. It's like you're on literally my least favorite. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> but I'm reading, so this is good and truly. No, that's the thing because, like you said, the the Dracula story with Jerry and Brian, it was a great story. And I mean, yeah, that James Bond sequence in particular was was fantastic. This really felt like coming home to classic marvel and that's not necessarily something i'm looking for uh-huh. but it but it really it it worked on that level for me where i'm like no this is just a really good action story you got um you know and i'm not really again because i don't care about cable but i am <laughs> interested in where he's at in your story yeah. because he is he's uh he's older he doesn't seem to have his powers or at least that's what uh right what deadpool, deadpool is telling us and stuff and yet he and he and um he and Deadpool are sharing these premonitions yeah. of, 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 you know, an assassin or something going wrong. And obviously split second being a, a villain from the future and using kind of time travel uh, equipment and powers and stuff. You know, yeah, it's uh, I like it. I mean, that's the thing. It's a good combination. And, and um, yeah, it just fe- it feels in the best way, like an 80s or 90s, a good 80s or 90s. Marvel well, good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's. Yeah, <laughs> that, I, I, shitty I really, <laughs> and Lord knows there are plenty of those. Um, yes, indeed, both uh, decades. Sadly. Yes, indeed. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I really love like the 
the, you know, there's a, there's a fast pacedness that I really enjoy about the eighties and nineties stuff where not everything, not every storyline was dragged out to six issues or a year. Right. It was yeah. Like, no, de- no, no decompression at all. Right. Absolutely. It was much punchier. You, and you know, yes. you get into the story, you get to the cool parts and you move on and you feel like, you know, you, after every issue, you felt like you just saw a movie and Fabian is so good at that. Like, Sometimes I'm looking at these scenes, I'm like, man, there's no way I'm going to be able to fit this whole thing into a single issue. And then, you know, so you start, like, you, you know, you, so I do the layouts, and then I end up having to, like, crop certain things out. And be, oh, well, this one sequence I feel like should be, like, five panels. I'm going to have to do it just in one panel. Um, but, you know, you do it, and then the way he puts the dialogue in and everything, it doesn't seem, I mean, it seems perfect. Like, the pacing is perfect, and it... Uh, it really works out well. I don't know. So I'm really happy with um, how it turns out. I like your design for Split Second. Like I said, I, I'm like, oh, this is clearly another Marvel character that, you know, I'm sure fought, uh, you know, Nighthawk or, or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fabian actually, Somebody. Like, at first, when we first started working on this, Fabian gave me this um, design that he came up with for the character. And it's actually, at the beginning of the second issue, uh, at the very beginning, like there's like a briefcase and it shows a bunch of schematics and blueprints for the split second armor. Mm-hmm. There's a little drawing and that's actually Fabian's drawing. That I just scanned it and, um, oh, that's and put great. in there. And, uh, <laughs> it, you know, and when I saw that, I was like, Oh man, it does. It looks so much like a, like a new warriors villain or something like yeah. that. You know, I was like, Oh, that's so <laughs> funny. But, um, yeah, so I did the scourge, did the scourge kill him like in the eighties or whatever. Maybe he'll time travel back in time. And that's, that's his ultimate fate. Maybe. But, but, um, yeah, but it's fun. It's been a lot of fun and it's great working with Fabian again. And, uh, you know, and, and you're, you know, you mentioned, uh, cable coming back and he's lost his powers and everything. That was something that I thought was kind of interesting because the character has been through like so much hell since the last time we saw him that Mm -hmm. um, we didn't want to just bring him back, you know, at his full strength. I mean, you know, we couldn't really because of losing his powers and his bionics and everything. Um, So I really kind of wanted to like, like when he he first shows up, he's in like this old uh, military looking jacket. My idea was like making him kind of like a crazy um, Vietnam war vet who, Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of, he's like down on his luck. He, he doesn't know where he fits into the world anymore. Uh, you know, so he's got this like big scraggly beard. And but instead of having flashbacks, he's having flash forwards. That's kind of, you know, so that those are kind of the premonitions he's having about how like like, everything's about to go wrong. So that Very was, cool. you know, it's you know, trying to find interesting takes on these characters. Sure, man. No, that's great. That's seriously, that's the thing. Cable always annoyed me because he was all bionic up, and I know that was his deal. I know he annoyed a lot of people, but, but you know what? As a kid, he was the coolest thing in the world. Like, I get it. He had a bionic Absolutely. glowing eye, and the other eye had a scar on it. It's like if he had a third eye, it would need to have a patch because you've got to like do it all the way up. You know, like that's like I think. Every single character I ever drew as a kid, one of his arms was was robotic. Like that was just the way things were back then. That's fantastic. Well, you know, honestly, I grew up with the original Deathlock, yep. and that's you know, Deathlock was my Marvel cyborg yeah. guy. I mean, that's the thing. I'm like, yeah, they got they got Deathlock. What the hell? Who cares about Cable? <laughs> I didn't even know who the hell Cable was. My uh, I went to work at Sporting News Radio in uh, 2001. 
And that's when I discovered Cable because I really I wasn't paying attention to Marvel uh, in the 90s. I, I just wasn't. And and barely paying attention to DC. Oh, I mean, I, and and the guy that my boss is a huge was a huge X Men fan. Well, so He's like, oh, that's Cable, and I'm like, because I'm like, obviously that's an X Men. So what, what happened the hell is when it? you realized that your comics weren't going to be worth a lot? You just bailed like everybody else back then. <laughs> no, you know, honestly, um, it was all of the. It, I, I mean, honestly, I, I get their their popularity and why they're you know lauded, and and I do like a lot of their work now. But um, a lot of the image stuff really didn't interest me and those guys and that style and how it became more important about the art and less about the story. In my personal view, it, that just kind of turned me off and I just kind of checked out. Yeah. And I – you know, and also you know, I, I think I'm, I'm trying to remember because really it was all these guys in 99 that kind of got me back. And it was, you know, Brew Baker and Rucka and yeah. things like Batman's No Man's uh, Land and Bendis uh, doing Ultimate Spider-Man and uh, Kevin Smith doing Daredevil. Interesting. Yeah. That was the stuff that – I mean that's the thing. Like when Daredevil was, you know, uh, a demon and right. uh, when, he had, when he had the gray suit and everything, I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it <laughs> so was. Driver, I, I'll get off here. <laughs> you. You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, I mean that, that does happen as time goes on. Sure. Like new art styles come into fashion. Then some of the old ones that, you know, maybe you started reading and you're like, hey, I came on because I like Jack Kirby stuff. And now I'm not seeing any Jack Kirby stuff anymore. So, you know, then yeah. you kind of move on and the next guys come in. And, and you, you know, you're seeing more and more of that happening nowadays, too, I think, um, where people are a lot of artists are coming in with a much looser style. You know, like you see the success of like Batgirl, obviously. And sure. um, some of those are a little lighter and more cartoony. And I think, yeah, so you're seeing a certain amount of pushback where old fans aren't liking that, but those are the hot books. So Absolutely. And it's weird because now I do appreciate it and I get excited when I see a lot of the different uh, styles in art. I think it, again, I think it's more of, and although I'm sure that artists might think that it's still a writer's world, I, I really think it was more too that it was just art heavy and, and just like it was more about the splash page and and the cool like moment then at least for me where storytelling seemed to just kind of go away. I mean, I try to read uh, '90s comics uh, that I didn't read the first time around, and I can't read them. Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's actually been a while since I've really read that many '90s comics. Uh, I, I mean, except for you know, I like the X Men ones. The X Men were, they, I mean, that was X Men sure. and Spider Man were the only ship still afloat back then they were kind of keeping yeah, everybody yeah. up so that was pretty much you know those were like the better comics back then um, i haven't delved too much into some of the other stuff but but every time every now and then i'll pick up something and just flip through it and just be like oh my god like how did they get away with this and a part of me thinks yeah. like can i get away with that <laughs> like, <laughs> it looks like i didn't spend much time on this page can i does that fly can i do that <laughs> nice. very nice no, I understand. Have you – and I might have asked you this the first time we talked. Do you ever talk to a guy like Peter Krauss or somebody like that that's also doing you know, interesting things with digital comics and kind of doing these layered kind of uh, panels and progression and everything? Um, yeah, actually. I was just recently at a convention sitting right next to uh, Brent Schoenover. Um Yes, of course. A good friend who was just on the show. Yep, and he does Batman 66. Yes. And uh, we talked about it a little bit and just kind of compared how DC does it differently to how Marvel does it. And um, I wish we could have talked more about it, but it was actually 
he and his wife's 10th anniversary. So they, uh, you know, they, they didn't want to have me around for dinner. I was like, <laughs> 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 but, but we did talk about that a bit. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I talked to people a lot about this stuff and just found So, Hey, what do you, you know, you have any cool ideas? How do you think I should approach this? And I mean, honestly, most people just say, well, you've done more than me, man. You're, you're, you're the guy that knows what they're doing. I'm like, oh, man, like, I, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just making it all up. Exactly, man. No, you guys are in a good way. You're you're all kind of finding your way, and I I think that's great because it is a new way to tell illustrated stories, and that's terrific. Well, I mean, you know, that's that's the great thing. It's interesting too that I don't know where digital sales are, but I was surprised to read, and it makes sense that a, tr- a tablet uh, sales have kind of like flattened out because I I don't think people necessarily feel the need to upgrade. Well. Right away, it's where Bendis I noticed it. He uh, he just bought that giant uh, iPad <laughs> and like magazine size or whatever, yeah. you know. I mean, I I don't know much about the sales of the equipment and stuff, but it makes perfect sense to me. Like I've I've got my iPad. I think it's like a generation two or something. And yeah, what are they on now? Like five or six or something. And right. Mine still works fine for the stuff I use it for. Um, like it's getting to the point where. It keeps asking me to upgrade, and I'm like, no, you work fine, buddy. You don't need to upgrade because I know once you upgrade, then everything's going to take up so much more memory, and then I'm going to need a new one. So yep. I'm just trying to keep it where it's at because I could still download all my comics, and that's you know I use it for that and looking things, uh, looking things up on the internet, and you know, so I don't need to upgrade, and it's an expensive piece of equipment. So um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like it gets to the point where everybody has one. And they try not to buy another one right away like they might with their cell phone. Yeah, I just wonder where, you know, has have digital comics settled into their niche next to physical comics? I you know, that's the thing. Or is, I, is the growth is the growth still there, do you think? And uh, you know I am I'm not sure. Um I mean I expect it's still growing. I mean I know I know the guys at Comixology and their offices keep expanding and filling up and stuff. That's so. true. That's they're true. doing plenty well. Um, but I mean, their, their rise was so meteoric that it's probably, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if the growth has slowed down because it went so fast. Um, but I'm sure that they're That's still growing. Well, and also, you know, everyone wonders as you know, the price goes up for the physical comics too. Um, you know, when does, you know, everyone almost is kind of looking into the potential future and saying maybe chapter wise, the floppies might go away. And I know certain people always cringe when they hear floppies. I just mean that as obviously the magazine version of the comic. It's not meant. Yeah, that's become the, whether people like it or not, that's kind of. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But that, but that's the thing that the physical magazine might go away and, you know, we'd still have trades. But yeah, if people want chapters and stuff, I, you know. I mean, I have no I idea, know. man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not yeah. part of those conversations. But I, if that's ever going to happen, it's so far in the future, it's not really worth stressing out about now. Sure. Well, and you know, I kind of it's weird. I I find myself buying more of the big two digitally, mm-hmm. and um, I'll I'll you know when it comes to the independent stuff, that's when that's when I'll buy the physical book. Yeah, uh, myself, I tend to buy the comics that, like, the comics I've always bought physically, I keep buying them physically, but I'm more likely to check out a new comic digitally. Okay. Um, 
I, you know, I guess I, I would agree. Collector's yeah. mentality. It's like, oh, all my comics look this way. I want to keep getting the ones that look that way. You know, in that format. Uh, well, it's funny. It was weird because I uh, a friend of mine, his his son is twelve and he's uh, getting into comics. And I said, oh, you know, let me let me go through my stuff and, and see if I've got a trade or something like that that I could give the kid. And I realized that most of my physical comics are image books and things like that, or, or more adult stories. That I'm like, yeah, they, I can't give this to a twelve year old. <laughs> and, and you know, and I, and and that you know, some of the meat and potatoes DC and Marvel stuff that I could give them, yeah, that, that's the stuff that I buy digital. Okay. And, well, and then also when you talk about trades, like these days. Uh, so many companies have such beautiful printing technology that oh, like, yeah. like some of these trade paperbacks are so beautiful. Like, like, and, and that's what, you know, let's go back to what I was saying before. I like to make the best reading experience possible for whatever the format is. And so I mm-hmm. like that some of these uh, publishers are going with like this really high end, cool printing stuff and putting out stuff that can't be mimicked with a computer, you know, like either it's a certain type of glossy thing or, um, you know, some kind of like, like gold, like foil, like embossing or something like that, just to make it, just to make the printing object a little bit more unique. Um, sure. I think that's cool. And, not, and I not, not, don't mean like chromium covers and stuff like in the nineties, but I just mean as a, yeah, the trade paperback collection really just making that a beautiful piece of work. I think it, like they're doing some cool stuff out there. Oh yeah, Jason Wood always uh, he calls it shelf porn. Yeah, yeah, and and he's right, absolutely, man. No, that's you know that's what it is. You, you can't help but want to buy this this physical book and have it on on your bookshelf and everything. Well, I get, and it. that's something I've been you know I've I found a printer recently that does something like that, and I printed up some stuff um, for New York Comic Con that was on this like metallic paper, and man, okay, people stopped, man. They were they were walked by my table and said, "Whoa, what's that?" And it really you know it it worked out pretty well. What stuff did you do? Uh, just a couple of prints, just to kind. Of, I was just testing mm. it out because it's okay. more expensive to print, and so I was a sure. little skeptical. I'm like, well, let's do a couple of these and just see what happens. And it worked out really well, so I'm probably going to try to do more of that stuff. Where are you now on PowerPlay? I mean, what is the status? Where, <laughs> um, well, well, it's you know they, that's the usual question. Yeah, Don't get me wrong, people. Well, you got <laughs> hey man, every, you got to make the money. And if, you know, honestly, I, I understand, you know, in terms of, I understand, but feel free. You, you, you know, talk about it and say where the status is. It's about program. time, man. It, like, I've got, um, I really wish I could do more creator own stuff, more power play, and also more St. George. Um, I Okay. That was my Dark Horse thing that was running in Dark Horse Presents a year or so ago. And um, I, like, I've got, with, with St. George, I have a whole, I mean, the next chapter entirely drawn. But it's only one, and you, you know you got to have a bunch of chapters to start putting them out. Otherwise, it's just going to, you know, just not. And not. and that will will that still come out through Dark Horse? Uh, yeah, that? I mean that's the idea. Um, but I'll you know, who knows? We'll we'll see what my schedule looks like in the future. And that's the way power plays too. Like I've got the next one written out. I got all the thumbnails done, but it, it's been that way for over six months, and it's just I don't have time to work on other things um but we'll see we'll see what happens you know you keep hoping that oh okay like i'll be able to start doing it again around this time but then something else comes up so with the fact that you're mentioning these other printers that's why i'm wondering too you know yeah how much you're looking at in terms of you know future formats for your own stuff that's the type of thing is just like i see what's out there and i look okay that's a cool idea i gotta just bookmark that 
for whenever mm-hmm. I'm ready. So it's something that's always on my mind somewhere. It's just not, you know, the pencil in my hand is drawing Deadpool at the moment and not, you know, not the other things. Understood. Absolutely. Well, and then you just told me as before we started recording that uh, you've got uh, you got a baby on the way coming in uh, January. That's right. Yeah, in January. So, so congratulations. That's, yeah, thanks, that's wonderful. So that's the other thing. Like I, <laughs> I'm like after January, I have no idea what my life's going to be like for the next 18 years. So uh, <laughs> we. <laughs> so that's you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so I need some time to like figure that out. Like, how am I going to like be? Feeding a baby over here, changing diapers and drawing all at the same time. Like, I have no idea. So uh, once I figure that out, then I might be able to have a better idea of when, you know, a certain passion project will start making more headway. But Are you getting what you want out of comics right now? I mean, I understand that you obviously do have more ideas that you want to get to. But yeah, I mean, just, you know, every now and then do you kind of like from a business sense – stop and say okay what am i doing and you know am i doing the right stuff um yeah i think about that a lot and it's uh it am i i'm I'm constantly looking at what my career is where it's where i'm going where Mm -hmm. do i think i'm trying to go and am i going there you know and just look around seeing what other people are doing seeing what other opportunities are out there and Mm -hmm. um I don't know. It's really hard. Like I, I, I really like a lot of what I'm doing. Like I really like doing the digital stuff. I'm really psyched yeah. to be working on Deadpool again. Like that was the thing. Like, um, you know, I, I was working on at DC on Lobo last year, and then, mm-hmm. but then they were going to, you know, when Fabian uh, calls me up, he's doing this new Deadpool and Cable comic that's digital, and I'm like, well, I need to be a part of that. So it's like they give you this project that you just can't say no to. So that's pretty awesome. Um, with a Deadpool movie coming out, like that's it's a good time. Absolutely, yeah, man. No, I don't blame you. So I'm very psyched about that. Uh, But there is always the hard part that like the drawing, the the actual drawing takes so long and is so much work, and like per ounce of effort is like the like least paying thing that I do. So um, that is difficult, Uh, and so you know it's just you try to figure things out. And, um, so, yeah, so I don't know. So it's, who knows? (laughs) No, I understand. And I, I, well, you just went through the variables of, of exactly a good reason to be working with a Marvel character in anticipation of a big movie that's coming up next summer and everything. No, I don't blame you at all, man. I mean, and that's, I mean, I'm happy for, uh, Jerry Bryan and, and Tony Moore and oh, everybody yeah. else that's been working on Deadpool because yeah I think really you guys have been telling yeah. <laughs> absolutely man no and that's that's great and I hope everybody gets big fat royalty checks from their trades <laughs> yeah and stuff man you know definitely me too um, but uh, yeah but it does keep me like I do keep my eyes open for like what are other things I could be doing and one of the things I'm working on it's one of the few side projects I've been able to keep moving because it, well, it's not really a side project. It's, um, it's a really good gig is doing this web strip for this company, ghost tech. Uh, yeah. Talk about that. Okay. So it's, uh, it's a company, they sell waterproof cell phone cases and headphones and things like that. And they, it's a, it's a new company to start up and they want to have, um, a comic on their website that updates every week. And so when I heard about that, or, or, you know, uh, like I met one of the guys, one of the guys who works there uh, is, you know, 
after work, he is an artist, so he comes by the, and he has a room in my art studio. And so, you know, I run into him and he was telling me about this thing. I said, oh, well, let me show you the digital comics I've been doing for Marvel. And so I show him this and he's like, man, this is perfect. Like, this is totally what we want for the website. So, uh, so, you know, I'm still working on this comic for them. And at first I thought it was going to be like just some really corny uh, product placement, like commercial. And that's kind of what I thought I'd be doing. But they were like, no, like, you know, have some product placement, like have, like have, like as long as we see the phone, uh, the phone case or the headphones or whatever it is, um, you know, don't name drop the, the product at all. Like don't talk about it or bring any undue attention to it. Just we want to have this content. And so, so it's actually turned out to be like a really fun project with a really fun story that I'm like super into. And it's really great. Um, it's called, so tell, yeah, tell us, tell us about this. Uh, it's called Dash Hudson and it's kind of, uh, he's a super spy, like a James Bond type guy, but it, it's a comedy thing. So it's more like, it's more like an archer type of thing where it's like super spies behaving badly. And okay. so, you know, so he's pretty much, cause I have to show the cell phone case. He's pretty much just text messaging as he's going on his adventure. And he's like, you know, like he's uh, looking up this one girl on Snapchat and he's like, you know, <laughs> using the, you know, like there's one person using the cell phone for surveillance and um, the, you know, it's, it's fun. It's funny. Like the bad guys, the giant octopus man, um, and uh, uh, eight, eight glove Marlowe. He's an ex boxer who's a who's an octopus, and I can't I can't <laughs> wait to get him and Dash fist fighting each other. Um, Fantastic! But then That's it's good. just a lot of goofy, and you know, since the phone is waterproof, for the the phone case is waterproof, it's just constantly like you know ways to dunk Dash in like a Shark Tank or you know <laughs> something like That's that. And well. it's yeah, and so it's um. So it's fun and it's silly and yeah, there's a lot of product placement, but it's not like it, it all works with the story. Like I, I don't think you're going to read it and feel like you're reading an advertisement. It's just well, that's that's what Buffy and those you know Joss Whedon did with Buffy. I mean, they they were all on IMAX or not IMAX on on uh, Mac you know MacBooks and everything exactly. And and it's like yeah, Apple like <laughs> Apple paid for that product yeah. placement and and it was there and you saw the Apple logo, but it wasn't like you know hey. Gee, I'm really glad we're doing this on our MacBooks. Right, right. Yeah, so pretty much this is like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's what we're <laughs> <right>. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean from a subtle standpoint, yeah. obviously. But, but that's cool. Yeah, but that's the same good. yeah. Like in the in the Marvel movies, like they all drive like Acuras or whatever it is. And um yeah, you know, but you know, they don't talk about it, it's just in there. So anyway, sure. so it's just it's fun. Uh, and I'm doing the whole thing, I'm writing it, I'm coloring it, I'm lettering it, I'm drawing it, everything. So that's great. Uh, What's the URL? Uh, ghosttechproducts.com. And it's right there on their front page. Yep. It's, uh, well, the front page, like the top, there's a, um, like that, like the, the landing page is the comic, but then okay. the comic itself, like that's just kind of like the site decoration, the comic itself, like you open up another menu and, sure. uh, it says dash and that, you know, dash Hudson is the name of the character. Um, and then you can see the individual chapters. Yeah, how many? Like, are you just doing one long story, or are you doing several stories for them? Uh, at, well, I am. It's kind of up in the air right now. We're just working on the first story, and we'll see where it goes. I mean, the stories are—they just want a weekly strip, and the how 
you know, whether it's one story or several stories has been uh, up to my discretion at this point. Okay. How many, and so there's several chapters already up there? Uh, I think this week, uh, chapter three just went up. Okay. And um, it should be weekly. Cool. But it's a very similar uh, style storytelling to what I'm doing with uh, Deadpool and Cable at Marvel, where, you know, the panels pop up and there's like reveals and stuff that way. Very cool. And yeah. Yeah. I think that's a cool way to do a webcomic. And, you know, I don't see people doing it. So I was kind of like, oh, great. This is a cool opportunity for me to do a webcomic, but, you know, not have to make it another passion project that doesn't pay. It's like, I'll do it for this company. And, you know, it's a proper job. No, and it's nice to see uh, the, a sponsor using comics that way yeah. instead of, like you said, you know, it's a Crest toothpaste uh, comic right. that is only going to be in dentist uh, chair, you know, uh, waiting rooms and stuff like that. And I understand. Yeah. That's no, that's cool. That's that's terrific, and I'm I'm interested to check it out. That's very nice. So, what about uh, tell me you, you've got an art show going on right now in New York City? That's right. Yeah, I've got um, I've got a bunch of my original comic book artwork. Uh, on display at Gallery Art on A is what it's called, uh-huh. and it's yeah it's on Avenue A between Second Street and Third Street, and um, yeah it's it's just you know a little gallery it's in cool part of town, and it's just some of my comic book stuff it's a bun- it's a whole lot of Deadpool a bunch of Lobo, um, I think they got a couple of Spider Man pieces up there I don't know just random some Hercules I don't know random stuff from throughout my career. Because, yeah, I mean, this was this year is my 10th year working as a professional comic book artist. So Very nice. Yeah. Wow, look at that. Man. I know. Jesus. So I wanted to have a party, and I was like, you know, there's no publisher that's going to throw me a 10-year anniversary party. So I was like, well, I'll throw my own party. And I was like, well, wait. Like, you know, because I was like, well, if I would throw a party, I, you know, I, I want to do it upright. My apartment's too small. So I was like, well, I should rent out a place. I'm like, wait, if I get a gallery, then they'll pay for everything, and I can put my art up. And then maybe sell some stuff and make some money. So that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> that's fantastic. So, so far cool. it's working out pretty well. <laughs> are there covers up there and everything? Or uh, yeah, there's, everything? there's a few covers from uh, from the Dracula's Gauntlet storyline. Uh, or no, wait, cool. no. From the uh, the more recent Mrs. Dracula storyline. Some of the covers I did for that. Okay. And some of the Mega Man covers I did. Um, Excellent. I think there's about maybe 30 pieces up altogether. That's terrific. Yeah. That's really cool. So that's that's great. Is there a, any sort of print that commemorates the the gallery um, show as well? Uh, nothing specifically for this show, but it's uh, a bunch of the. Well, I got the metallic prints that I was talking about. Um, those I'm selling there, and uh, those are like signed, numbered, limited edition prints. And I've also got like my convention sketchbooks um, all on sale there too. Very cool. That's excellent. I was just checking. I, I heard a weird uh, glitch, and I wanted to make sure that we're still recording, oh. and we are. So okay. Everything's fine. Take two. No, no, no. All good. Absolutely. No, everything's everything's going good. No, that's that's very cool. That's terrific. Yes. Um, but that's what you know, yeah. we were talking about the business thing. Like, you know, what like what am I? You know, when I look at where my business is headed, you know, when you have a when you have a baby on the way, you really start thinking about that stuff a lot. So that's been those past few months. It really kind of. Try it, try it. Okay, wait, let's get a gallery go, show going. Let's see, you know, let's find other ways to make, uh, you know, what, what do other professional artists do? Okay, they sell their original artworks. So let's do that. And let's, um, you know, show what conventions are good to go to? What, you know, where am I actually, I don't know, just, try, <laughs> just trying to be professional about everything and not 
not necessarily just do make my decisions. Oh, that sounds fun. Let's go to, you know, let's go to that convention. It's like, no, wait, let's go to the one that really is going to, you know, that's that I'm going to make, make a good profit at. And yeah, I don't know. No, that makes sense. Well then, so when you're making these infinite comics, are you drawing on paper oh, yeah. and, and then, okay. So then, yeah. So there is always hard, hard stuff that you're, you know, using and then, and then processing it digitally. Yeah. Because um, the, the infinite comics are supposed to be about 15 pages long, like I said before. And so I, yeah, the easiest way to do that is just draw it on 15 sheets of paper. And uh, if, you know, and if you know that you're, you've got 20 sheets of paper, it's like, okay, I'm working too hard on this. I got to start making these smaller and make them fit on the page. Okay. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Have you played with drawing digitally? Um, only a little bit. I, uh, I, I've never really broken out a Cintiq or anything, which I think, you know, I've got a Wacom tablet at home and that's great mm-hmm. and that works uh, well enough. But if I use it too long, like my back starts hurting. Um, and I think okay. that's just because I'm drawing over here, but looking up. So it's kind of like a weird posture. Uh, I don't know. I, I heard people say that Cintiq, you don't have that problem. So I've got to play around with one of those. But um, I don't know. Like I, I, I figured out the math and like with the amount of money I make selling the original artwork, I would have to be able to speed up my production by about a third, I think. Like if I could get an extra, like, I don't know, 33% more pages drawn or something. Or, yeah, mm-hmm. it, was some, it was some kind of thing like that. Then it would be worth it. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm not ready to do that. I haven't really tried. I just don't like staring at a computer screen all day. I can appreciate that, certainly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that people that are known for their digital work that are still working on paper. And then there are ones that you don't think about it like a Norton, you know, yeah. and Norton's been, you know, drawn on the Cintiq for God, like five or six years now. Oh yeah. Really? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. No. And that's the thing. Exactly. I mean, you wouldn't know it to just see his work in revival or yeah. when he's doing a Marvel or a DC book and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I loved, uh, we were flying back from uh, San Diego one year. And we're on the plane, and I look over, and he's, and I'm like, "Oh, are you just checking your work?" He's like, "No, I'm actually doing my work." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." You know, and I'll tell you though, at the end of the day, or, you know, at the end of the week, I just love having that stack of pages, and you can actually see, "Oh, this is what I did this week." I can appreciate and that. Yeah, I, I work with paper like that absolutely. Like that, it you know, and it's the artwork, and like it, it just looks so good, you know, when it's on, sure. actually on the page, and I really don't want to give that up, so I'm very hesitant to like get into the digital thing. Uh, I mean, I've, I'm sure I'll try it eventually just to see what happens. Maybe I'll really, you know, fall in love with it. Who knows? But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give it a chance. But I'm, well, but, but <laughs> I'm I, not ready but to also, it Yeah, but also I think, as you said, when you're, when you're seeing how to maximize the most of out of your art and everything, hey, you don't want to cut yourself off for that aftermarket, sure. you know, or after, after a, pro- a project is over, getting the pages back and being able to, you know, sell them to a collector or something right, like that. Right, right. Exactly. Sure, man. No, and you, I mean that's the thing. Your stuff is great. I mean, that's your your stuff is the kind of stuff that people would want to buy. I saw that um, uh, cable uh, Deadpool cover that was your Back to the Future. Oh yeah, yeah, man. Uh, you know, and I, that was cool. I, I bleeding cool like showed the hell out of that. I don't know if you did. You bring it back too on Twitter or whatever? Uh, Do I remember uh, seeing that in your uh, feed? Well, I'm sure I put po- I posted it somewhere. But you know what's really funny is that was a total coincidence. Like I did that cover. I think back in. August maybe. And, um, I had no idea that it was going to like the solicitations were going to come out the very same day as 
the Back to the Future, like like the day that Marty traveled in Back to the Future. Right. So sure. Like, so I actually emailed the editor and said, "Oh, hey, like since I did that Back to the Future thing, like I don't know when solicitations are going to come out, but should we like say something about that just because you know, like I don't know if it's sure. too early, but maybe we could get some press." And she's like, "Actually, solicitations just came out." So I was like, "Oh, well, that couldn't be more perfect." <laughs> <laughs> so that it was really you know like you can't plan something like that it really was like totally perfect and so it was all over the place and that was really great that yeah absolutely man no that was a lot of fun very funny very very cool and that's a funny you know <laughs> what it's also a post online that really made me think twice that after uh, after that day now back to the future takes place entirely in the past which is really weird to think it's true. About. <laughs> he doesn't it's sad but anymore. true He's, he just yeah. stays in the past yeah, but that is for me. That is like the fun of like those fifties and sixties movies that are set in the nineteen nineties. Oh yeah, totally. And and you know, I mean, we we believe. Hey, I was one of those kids. It's funny. I was watching an old West Wing. Yeah. And uh, and John Spencer, the president's chief of staff, was complaining about like you know supercomputers and like, don't you love the internet? And he goes, Yeah, but come on, man. I grew up with like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. Where's my jet? Yeah. <laughs> and and seriously, I can I can tell you as a kid who grew up in the early seventies. I was certain by this age I'd have a jetpack well, because is, they were there on live television yeah. all the time. There are all jet the packs. time. Like people, there are people out there. That of course there are. Packs. But you know, they're not just they're just that practical yet. And they, you know, I mean, I literally in my head thought, wow, that's really going to be cool. I mean, maybe I won't need a car. I'll just like have my jetpack, and that's how I'll get to and from oh, work. Man, I. Which is really you know, I, kind of. I, I joke around with my wife about that all the time. It's like, oh yeah, man, we're gonna win the lottery and then I'm gonna buy a jetpack. Like, that's what I'm gonna spend my money. <laughs> you gotta live near water, though, I guess, to have that. Oh, like, uh, but the water, the aqua ones, those would be great. Yeah, exactly. Because that's yeah. That otherwise, you know, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm afraid that we might, you know, singe our backs a little bit okay. with. Uh, the fuel propelled one. <laughs> yeah, well, know. you got to figure. I, I've seen some models out there. People are taking that into consideration. Maybe or God, you know the. Uh, it's funny now, but uh, back in the fifties, Ralph Cramden, Jackie Gleason. I'm waiting for three D television, yeah. and it's like, well, we're here. <laughs> Sorry, Jackie, yeah, <laughs> you didn't live long enough. Well, you you missed it by about twenty right. years, but we're here. So kind of crazy, yeah. but there you go. It's, yeah, so that's that's how I look at. Uh, the movies that are set in the future that unfortunately now are the past. Well, I, 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 I would, yeah, I mean, it is. A, it's an interesting thing to look at past eras and see what they thought the future would be like, and how it either was true or wasn't true. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's it's very it's very fascinating. I mean, honestly, oh, yeah. ultimately, it says more about the culture that's dreaming up these possible futures than it does, you know, what anybody actually think the future is going to be like. But. Uh, no, but it's it's fun. It's uh, God. We did a, a, a space, or rather, the Science Channel uh, did that Prophets of Science Fiction show, and I got to be a part of it. Oh, really? And it, yeah, and you really you respect these guys like Jules Verne and uh, you know Isaac Asimov that really were thinking about this stuff decades before it happened. I mean, especially Jules Verne a hundred years before yeah, it happened. That's. I mean, it's just amazing that these guys were that you know like could extrapolate and go well if we were to do this. You know, and really kind of apply some some science behind their their fiction yeah. and make great stories that actually do have you know the facts. I mean, NASA you know kind of used Vern's basics in terms of like Vern's like, well, if they're going to do a moonshot 
it would probably have to be this close to the equator and probably, you know, I don't know, like Florida in the United States. And I mean, you know, he's doing this in the 1870s. <laughs> and that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so. What? I don't know. Do you have any idea what, like, when was the first, the very first story about time travel? Like, there must be something in, like, ancient mythology or something, right? Well, I don't know, actually. I'm not sure. That's a fair question. I mean, yeah, I don't know before. I mean, obviously, everyone. I'm sure everyone's thinking, well, Wells, uh, you know, H.G. Wells. But yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, may not, it may not have been the first well, one. I mean, there was, there's a public domain book, and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, well, certainly, uh, I, I guess, well, no, Rick Van, Rip Van Winkle wasn't a time travel story, per se. Yeah. But the fact that he slept for a hunt, you know, 40 years that's, or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, it is, that's a certain type of time travel where he, you know, he's just in, he's just, Time traveled very slowly. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, no, but you're right. Yeah, I, yeah. So there's an earlier one, I guess, Washington Irving. I mean, that yeah, the, revolutionary times. Yeah, the, the Book of Revelations obviously is like that's the earliest proper time travel. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, that's true. I never really thought about it that way. You're right about that. Uh, yeah, and you got all these old stories about prophecies. Do they ever like go? Does Zeus ever like go into the future? Or, like, you know, turn the Earth backwards to reset time like Superman did? I don't. I don't know. I'm I sure think there's, you, there's something like that out there. I don't know. I think you've got the genesis of a new story. We should have been cats <laughs> time traveling and stuff. That would be cool. This is I how like stories that. are born, man. <laughs> this is true. Absolutely, man. Well, very good. I, I like uh, I like what's happening with you, and I, I love seriously. It, I like you. I am your biggest critic when it would come to a cable Deadpool story. <laughs> I can tell. And then it's and uh, honestly, no, it's a it's a really really good start. You and Fabian are telling a very cool story right now, an infinite comic. Okay. That uh, people should be uh, checking out is, and uh, yeah, I want to make sure. Now that's Marvel's Infinite Comic, right? That's that's how they call it. Yeah, that's that's what they call it. Like it's, you know, there's no generic uh, phrase for it right now. Like something's got to come up, but Marvel calls it the Infinite Comics. Um, uh, Comicsology calls it Guided View Comics. Right, right. And, yeah, but you know, the Guided View I think is different. I don't know why. I mean, well, I mean it seems like what you guys like you and Thrillbent. You and Wade at Thrillbent and the artists that Wade are, you know, yeah. the way they're doing it, it's different than a guided view to me. Well, it's, uh, well, I mean, I guess Comixology calls it guided view native, which is just such a mouthful that you can't just use that as the phrase. So that it was made to be. To utilize uh, their guided view system. As, as, as opposed to, well, but okay, because, or, and as opposed to them taking a paper comic and, and doing the guided view. With right. It. I suppose that. So, so native is, native's the difference. Right, right. Um, but yeah, Marvel, their words, the infinite comics, that's certainly the most punchy out of them so far. I don't, well, and it reminds me, I don't remember what McLeod called them uh, in understanding comics, but I mean, that's, I'm assuming where the notion came from. Right. Too. Well, he just called it the infinite canvas, which I think is where Marvel took their phrase from. There you go. Okay. So I don't know. Uh, but yeah, there needs to be a good generic word that's not trademarked by Marvel, too. <laughs> so that other people can get on board. Have you met McLeod? Have you ever had a chance to talk to him about um, it? I've, you know, I haven't talked to him about this. I met him briefly before uh, because he, like years ago, he came to Brooklyn and he did a photo shoot at our studio. Um, okay. Seth Kushner was the photographer and he uh, he did a photo shoot in our studio. And so we actually, there's a blackboard in our studio. That's why they did it there. And he, so he drew all these, his like little symbols and stuff on the wall. And they're still there because we just can't, Erase them. <laughs> I understand. Um, so, are you part of Dean's uh, collective? Uh, I'm not. Dean Aspiel's collective. He's down the hall for me. Uh, 
That's hilarious. Yeah, oh, I didn't know. You're, yeah. Is it, you know, I never know how to say it. Guanas. Uh, how do you guys say it? Yeah. It is Guanas. Yeah. Okay, very cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome that you guys are all in that that building. Hey, is last I heard that are you guys going to be able to stay there? Are you going to have to move? What's going on? Uh, we well, eventually we will. We lucked out a little bit because the um, like the block that we're on, it's there are technically three buildings, but you know how it is. It looks like one just giant pile of urban architecture, but sure. it's technically three buildings. Um, Two of the buildings had to be out, like, like so that it, it changed. They were all owned by the same person. It changed the owners. And the new owner, two of those buildings, the new owner kicked them out by the end of the month. So they had, like, okay. a month to get out and, yeah move all their stuff out, find a new place to go. And sure. that sucked for them. So I guess yeah. that ended, I don't know if that ends, or there, maybe it was, it was a little more than a a month, it might have been like six weeks or eight weeks or something. So I don't know if they have to be out at the end of this month or they had to be out a week ago. I don't know. But, um, yeah, they were out of luck. We have two years. So we're still good in our building for two more years. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens at that point. Uh, I mean, you know, I guess we'll have to look for a new building. But then, you know, I'll have a kid at that point. So I don't even know what my life's going to be like. So, sure. um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens with that. But yeah. It's such a bummer because it was really like, it's such a great location. And Guanas has been like for the longest time, it was such a hole in the ground and just like industrial wasteland where there just wasn't anything there. But then over the past, like maybe two or three years, it's gotten kind of cool. And there's been new bars and new venues and stuff, new restaurants opening up. And it's actually been pretty cool. Um, and so, but now, of course, people are trying to raise the rent, like the path mark down the street just closed and got bought out by a bigger company. And, you know, it, so it's, we're at the point where like the, you know, people, people, you know, the eye of, you know, the eye of uh, uh, real estate Sauron just came down on Gowanus and said, oh, we can, this is a good neighborhood. We can start moving these artists out and moving real people. Um, yep. Gentrification. I understand, yeah. man. No, that's exactly what happens. And it's, yeah. And I know how valuable real estate is out there and everything. So every inch. Right. God, it's, I mean, it, it is so funny. It, it is true. Every time you go to, especially Manhattan, I mean, I know you're talking about Brooklyn and everything, <laughs> yeah. but, but yeah, I mean, it's just the, the fact that they're always constantly building. It constantly. Yeah. I mean, that, what's that old saying? Like New York, it, it'll be a great city if they ever finish it. <laughs> That's exactly right. No, so it does surprise me. Brooklyn's and, and Gowanus is part of Brooklyn, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. See. All right. You know. Again, Chicago guys. So you got. Right. <laughs> but uh, you know, the farmer is figuring it out slowly. But uh, no, I understand. And you know, to a smaller degree, Chicago's like that. Although I don't know if uh, that mid, you know, when the when the economy dipped as badly as it did, a lot of projects in Chicago just stopped. Oh, right. And it's funny. There's a there's a uh, there's a really kind of weirdly interesting shopping mall that opened in the heart of downtown right by my uh, the building where I have my radio job. And uh, initially they were going to have a, a movie theater in there. But with the economy being bad, oh, the uh, theater had second thoughts and they pulled out. And just now, seven years later, they're finally putting the theater in. <laughs> Jesus. Or, or, or I should say they're like open – like whatever – or a chain decided to use the space – and open it up. But yeah, I'm shocked. But yeah, like starting in December, they're finally going to have movies on this fourth floor, which was built to be 
you know, a movie theater for some so, chain. I don't know if it's the same chain or was not. Is it a hole in the ground or an empty building or something for all this stuff? No, it's like the the first like it's it's four or five floors of a shopping mall, and the first three or four fl- uh, floors have had commercial. Oh, okay, you know, so there's just this but, empty floor up there. Yeah, and I mean, and it was weird because even in the third floor, it was kind of spottily uh, occupied, and for a while there was even a, a Chicago comic store up there. Okay, that that decided to open a um, you know one of uh, a satellite store, right? And I would go there because it was right down the street uh, from where I worked, and it was again a nice little shop and everything, and they had good stuff. But then, uh, yeah, they closed up, and then, yeah, like I said, now this uh, th- this fourth floor finally opened up, and it's weird because the basement has uh the of the mall has spaces for movie posters and for a while they still ran movie posters despite not having a movie theater <laughs> so you'd see advertisements like full posters for movies and uh and now finally yeah they're uh, then they went to public service messages that were the size of movie posters yeah and it's and now now it's back to movie posters again so yeah it's very weird that's funny oh, so there you go there's a little tour of uh Little tour of Brooklyn and Chicago real estate. Right. Uh, <laughs> very good, courtesy of Riley Brown. Thank you, man. No, it's uh, good to talk to you, and uh, congrats. Oh, and nice. uh, I'm glad. I'm, how long's the show going on? Um, the on the show uh, in Manhattan goes on till December third. That's the closing party. Okay, very cool. So there's still time to go out there and uh, and check out the the show. And 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 again, give the give the address. He said it's between uh, first and second on Avenue A. Uh, it's between second and third on Avenue. Oh, second and third. Yeah, it's called Art on A. It's uh, it's right next to the Wendigo Shop, which is like they're the same owners. So cool, excellent. And uh, yeah, currently uh, coming out uh, from Marvel Digital, it's uh, Deadpool and Cable split second, and uh, Chapter Three comes out. Um, well, the week that we're recording, and this might either come out the week, the same week or the the following week. It, it all depends. Yeah. But uh, but no, it's a, a very good man, and uh, we'll we'll look forward. And also the uh, the website for the uh, ghost uh, ghost tech ghost tech products dot com ghost tech products dot com. Um, and, and the Deadpool and Cable, uh, the first print issue comes out in December. So excellent. And be collecting the first two issues. Very good. Excellent, man. You and Fabian, Fabian Nussier are yep, co-writing right. and, and you're doing your chores. Excellent, dude. Keep it up and uh, good uh, good catching up and uh, keep me in touch. And when there's when there's something new to talk about, let me know and we, we'll do another one. Absolutely. All right, man. So check out Marvel's new Infinite comic with Deadpool featuring Fabian Nicieza and Riley Brown. That'll do it for today's Word Balloon. Thanks a lot for listening. Welcome to December. Uh, more great stuff coming up this month. Lots of conversation. So uh, keep your hats on, because uh, just as many as there were in November, there might be that many again this December. So uh, I'm uh, in my uh, daytime radio holiday mode, so uh, that's my busy time of the year as well, and that's why there might be big gaps and or sometimes small gaps between podcast episodes. But uh, keep checking wordballoon.com for the latest updates and uh, the latest podcasts. I hope you uh, continue to listen and subscribe to Word Balloon. That way you'll never miss an episode. If you like what you hear... Even if you don't, you can do me the great favor of leaving me a nice review at iTunes. Questions or comments about the show, you can reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. Uh, follow me at Facebook under my name, John Suntress, and the Word Balloon Network. Or you can follow me at Twitter, at John Word Balloon. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015. <laughs>